0: Uh, thank you, Sandra, for uh, inviting me. I'm delighted to uh, to be here. And uh, for me especially, it's a, an important moment. The Disraeli Project celebrates its 40th uh, anniversary this year. Uh, so um, it's a very meaningful um, moment for me to be here to talk to such a distinguished audience of Disraelites, as I like to call them. And as we're all Disraeli fans here, so to speak, I should tell you I'm wearing my Disraeli fan club uh, pin. It's a, some of you already have noticed that it's a Primrose League uh, pin, which uh, Helen will talk about um, a little bit later. It was given to me by one of the two founding fathers of the Disraeli Project, Don Sherman. Uh, He died a couple of years ago, uh, almost 90. Um, I'll talk about him also in a minute. (coughs) So what is the Disraeli Project Uh, It's a research unit um, at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada, population 118,000. And um, we um, edit, annotate um, Benjamin Disraeli's letters. That's what I do all day. And uh, they've been published since 1982 by the University of Toronto Press as the book that you've circulated there called Benjamin Disraeli Letters which has now reached 10 volumes, the last one just published last year. You might ask, what is the Disraeli project doing in Canada, of all places? Uh, in 1972, two faculty members, John Matthews from the Department of English and Don Sherman, I just mentioned, Department of History, um, came to England on sabbatical with the purpose of collecting, um, discovering, and unearthing, Disraeli letters as a kind of you know, sabbatical project, and they were much more successful than they uh, thought they would be. They came back with something like 3,000 um, photocopies and transcriptions of uh, letters. So this led to the establishment, officially, of the Disraeli project in 1975, a few years later. Now for the next five years, the project functioned as a rather large research unit with many people, uh, many meetings, and so on and so forth, uh, accumulating more letters, of course, and um, all the research materials that I still use today. Of the many members of the project over the last four decades, the most notable is certainly M. G. Wiebe, uh, who is also an English faculty member Um, at Queens, and he joined the project in 1979, and he saw those first two volumes, both of them appeared in 1982. He saw them through publication. He became senior editor, general editor, and for the next 20 years um, reorganized or reformed the project on a much smaller scale, Uh, and he sustained it by uh, funding from Canadian government grants, private enterprise, uh, private individuals, donors, and so on. In fact, it was thanks to his initiative that in uh, 2007, the project obtained a substantial grant from the Andrew Mellon Foundation, a grant that was responsible for bringing me uh, from Japan, where I was living at the time, uh, back to Canada to take over the project. A second key player is Mary Miller, um, also Uh, from Queens, uh, who was with the project for about 25 years. So those two, uh, Mel and Mary, uh, now retired, still remain active at the project as advisory editors. They review everything I do. Um, In fact, Mary, uh, just before I left uh, uh, a few weeks ago, I gave her three huge binders uh, covering 1869, 70, and 71. So she's probably, you know, crying uh, from the uh, trying to figure these these things out. In addition to uh, Mel and Mary, there's a another uh, individual, uh, Erica uh, Erica Barish Elsa, uh, a Victorianist who's on sabbatical from the Royal uh, Military College of Canada in Kingston, and she is now my part-time research. Associates, so the Disraeli Project team, as we like to call it, uh, I suppose is a, is a quartet, but really in fact only two people with two others sur- surveying and um, and verifying now over the years, those three thousand letters that I mentioned have grown to over twelve thousand. I think thirteen thousand is the figure I list in the in the handout but i 'll be more conservative after having reviewed my my statistics, about 12,000 letters gathered from over 300 collections uh, throughout the world. Uh, the gathering stage is, is, is over. We still, of course, come across letters, but uh, that was a, a, a period that I was not involved in. That took place uh, 20 uh, uh, or 25 years ago. Now, the total number of letters that we published in the first 10 volumes uh, amount to about 5,600. So we're only halfway there. We're only halfway to uh, the end, so to speak. What's astonishing, however, is the number of letters that we know Disraeli wrote, but that we don't have uh, through internal evidence, of course. Uh, for example, if you look at those first ten volumes and you can count them, uh, there are thirteen over 1,300 missing letters. We know he wrote them, but we don't have them. And um, I've tallied about 90 in the volume that has yet to be uh, published. So let's say about 1,400 letters that we know Disraeli wrote until 1871, but that we don't have. And of course, the last decade of his life uh, will yield, I'm sure, even more unknown, uh, unfound letters. Uh, We know that Disraeli's um, um, solicitor, Philip Rose, uh, destroyed of course a number of his of his letters uh, at his death and we know that his uh, private secretary Montague Cory may have done the same so uh, some of them have been destroyed some of them are lost some of them have yet to be found. Our latest volume, the one you have circulating there, volume 10, which covers 1868 was published last year um, is of particular importance I think because it covers Disraeli's first Ministry. So it took 40 years of work at the Disraeli Project to reach Disraeli's first 10-month uh, ministry. And for the first time, uh, one volume covers one year um, of, uh, of letters because he wrote so much. Uh, there are 659 letters, 510 of which have never been published, so about 77% of that volume consists of unpublished material. Erica and I are working on uh, volume 11, the next one, which will cover 69 to 73, the interim period before his second uh, and most important ministry starting in 1874. We hope to have that book done by the end of this year and published sometime next year. Now, as I said, believe it or not, uh, we keep adding to those uh, 12,000 letters um, as if they weren't enough to do. I come across them all the time. Some of them turn up on eBay, of course. Some are listed in auction catalogs. Uh, some people contact the project out of the blue. Um, a few years ago, a London barrister <coughs> emailed me, and he says, I just bought some, some papers, and I, there's a few Disraeli letters. Are you interested? And he was kind enough to send me uh, PDF files of eight Disraeli letters that he bought, and uh, three of them had never before been published, and they're in the section of the Volume 9 called Newly Found Letters. So every volume has a section at the end where letters that should have been published but were found later find a home. Still other letters, thanks to the internet, uh, can now be exhumed from um, obscure periodicals or uh, journals. For example, in an 1881 issue of a Boston periodical I discovered uh, I discovered four Israeli letters, one of them unpublished and another one which we had published in Volume 7 as an undated draft. We didn't know at that time uh, more than that. Uh, Just to give you an idea, you know, sometimes you think we get things right, but here's an example of how we get things wrong. Uh, Based on the available evidence of the time, that undated draft, published in Volume 7, was dated 7 April, 1859. The actual date is 60 May, 1864. Uh, They also thought, the editors at the time, also thought the recipient uh, was Thomas Kebble. In fact, it was John Skelton. So, of course, we rectified this, uh, these errors in, uh, in, in, a, in another volume, but uh, we continue to do that whenever new information comes to light, as it always does. Another Internet discovery I made was of a Disraeli letter quoted in, of all places, a French journal, La Revue des Deux Mondes, uh, for the September 1866 issue, at the very end of a 35-page essay by a French economist, Louis Volovsky entitled La crise financière de l'Angleterre in England's financial crisis in 1866 there was a there was a stock market crash and a considerable financial crisis Volovsky was good enough to provide the date 21 August 1866 but he only quoted one sentence in English fortunately from Disraeli's letter to him it's a lovely sentence it's almost a, an aphorism I believe currency Money, I believe currency is a subject which has made even more people mad than love. Very beautiful, beautiful sentence. Uh, Aside from the question, what is the Disraeli Project doing in Canada? The other most frequently asked question I I get is, you know, what exactly do you do? Uh, The short answer is that I write footnotes. Uh, not a very glamorous um, um, occupation, but very, but fascinating nonetheless. More specifically, what I do is not only what nowadays might be called micro-history, but on most days it's mini-micro-history, because I follow Israeli um, on a daily basis, sometimes even an hourly basis. Unlike most of you here, or some of you here who follow Disraeli's many lives, social, political, domestic, uh, on a a larger scale, I examine those lives through a microscope, so to speak, in order to contextualize the moment when a Disraeli letter was written. What do I use to do that? Well, we have microfilms, lots of microfilms, um, of newspapers that Disraeli would have read, The Times, The Bucks Herald, The Morning Post, all of them who, which report, of course, on, on his social and political activities. Uh, we also have copies of Hansard, hard copies of Hansard, but now that Hansard and The Times are online, uh, along with uh, hundreds of other, thousands of other 19th century books that I can use, uh, I can accomplish in, in minutes, uh, even seconds, what it would have taken my predecessors uh, weeks or months to, uh, to get to, and, and I can do it with a degree of accuracy and success exceeding what they could have done. So I don't take technology for granted and I certainly don't take the work of my predecessors for granted because the hours they spent uh, on their hands and knees in libraries looking for books or uh, rifling through uh, newspapers, um, I don't have to do that and I'm I'm thankful that I don't, but it means that I can work uh, a little bit faster. Now the core of the collection are those 12,000 letters that i mentioned before, which we have uh, in microfilms um, uh, or uh, photocopies. We also have the Hunden uh, collection, of course, uh, another 150 microfilm reels of Disraeli's papers, his political papers, um, Marianne Disraeli's account books, which I'll talk briefly about in a minute, and countless letters to Disraeli as well. In fact, it's a distinguishing feature of our edition that we often include, when available, and if relevant, a selection from the letters that Disraeli received. So we have created some kind of dialogue between Disraeli and his recipient. Now contextualizing uh, Disraeli's letters is often problematic. A missing recipient, for example, is frustrating enough but a partially dated or undated letter, as I just uh, uh, showed, uh, give us the most trouble. Uh, we look for clues. Um, does the envelope, uh, if, there, if there is one, if we have it, does the envelope have a readable postmark, for example? Has the letter been quoted in a Israeli biography? Sometimes typing in a phrase in Google Books will actually bring something. Uh, What about the letterhead? Was he writing from Hewenden? Was he writing from the Carlton Club? Was he writing from Grosvenor Gate? All this can be helpful in pinpointing when Disraeli was writing. We also find clues in newspapers. I mentioned the Times and the Bucks Herald, uh, which tell us about the dinners Disraeli gave or attended, uh, the speeches he made, his travels, even his health, of course. For example, I wanted to know why Disraeli was not in the house in late May, early June, 1865. And we have no letters from him between 20 May and 17 June, almost a month, a rather large gap in, uh, in our you know, chronology. So here's what I found in the Bucks Herald for 3 June we regret to have to record that the right honorable member for Bucks has been suffering during the present week from a severe attack of the gout uh, and that in consequence he has been prevented from taking part in debate. So the answer is right there in the newspaper. As you know, gout was a a perennial problem for Disraeli and Darby and a number of others. Uh, On one occasion in December 1867, Disraeli uh, sends Mary Ann a rather touching note that uh, Daisy alluded to uh, earlier on. He, he writes to her from the, the Carlton Club My dearest, pray send me an easy pair of boots. I suffer much now and can't attend to my work. You can imagine Disraeli's feet swelling and these tight little leather boots that he was, that he was wearing in December, right? Another editorial challenge that I face is what I like to call compression. I've invented the word for my own uh, use. Uh, Distilling the the essence of speeches reported in column after column of Hansard, for example. In fact, the letters in which Disraeli summarizes um, a debate in the House, many of them to the Queen, are the most time-consuming ones to annotate, uh, some of the most difficult ones. Here's an example from an unpublished um, uh, letter that I'm doing now, or that I just did, uh, to Montague Quarry. Torrens, by the way, these are just snippets of a very long letter. Torrens made a a very clever speech, but it was muttered rather than spoken. Gladstone shrunk from meeting the question. Northcote in consequence of my remarks in the lobby, gallantly restored the fight, and as I had an opportunity to speak again, I removed all impression of failure. He's very happy with himself. Um, well, here we have five speeches, two by Disraeli, which I had to read in their entirety and then compress into uh. <coughs> Another exercise in in compression is what we what we call the main notes, that is to say the biographical summaries for each individual each new individual mentioned in uh, in the letters. now this also uh, involves a considerable amount of uh, decision making, especially if the person is famous. what do you include? what do you leave out? what would the reader of this particular letter want to know or need to know. And sometimes even identifying an individual mentioned in a letter can be problematic. For example, there's in one letter, Disraeli mentions a a trustee of the British Museum by the name of Dundas. Well, I look in the Who's Who of of, uh, British Members of Parliament, Volume 1, and there are 11 men by that name, none of them, Uh, apparently um, uh, British Museum uh, trustees. So I turned to the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, also now online, thank goodness, and I find that Sir David Dundas was, in fact, a British Museum trustee from 1861 to 67. So I finally got my man, but again, sometimes it takes a little bit of looking. Still another challenge uh, that we mentioned earlier that uh, uh, Daisy mentioned is the challenge of deciphering handwriting, which I do uh, almost on a daily basis. Now, with rare exceptions of letters uh, from a print- printed source, Disraeli's letters, and uh, letters to him, of course, are handwritten. And sometimes you'll see uh, in our volumes um, a letter that's marked "A draft in D 's hand." These drafts, of which there are quite a few, can be incredibly messy. Uh, and uh, even four or five uh, pairs of eyes sometimes fail to um, you know, decipher what the Israeli was writing. And we resort to the word illegible. We try not to do that too often, but sometimes it's the only thing we can do. Now, one of the most difficult hands to decipher is that of Marianne uh, Disraeli. I think most, most of you who have read her writing will agree with that. But her account books, the meticulous uh, books that she kept, um, uh, are crucial to our work. She kept meticulous social records, financial records. Uh, we know when and where Disraeli uh, traveled. Uh, we know who was invited to dinner. We know how much food and alcohol w- was consumed. We know how many bottles of wine um, were, were drank and so on. So we, we rely on her account books to compile, and if you've got the book in front of you, you, you can look at it now, what we call the Disraeli chronology, which is a not day by day, but sometimes day by day, account of what Israeli does during the year or years covered by, uh, by one book. Uh, now I mentioned the decision making process that, that goes into writing these main notes. Well we try to follow Dr. Weeb's golden rule which um, I've only been around uh, at the project for the last seven or eight years. But his golden rule is don't annotate your annotations, uh, which, frankly, requires more self-restraint than one would think, because there's so much information, so much readily available information at my fingertips, that it's very tempting to just go on about an issue, a person, an incident. But you have to draw the line somewhere. We also have to decide what exactly constitutes a letter. Now, the answer to that, I suppose, is fairly simple. Any written document by Disraeli destined to another party, whether an individual or a group, sometimes he'll write these circular letters to uh, his fellow MPs, and those are published in, in the newspapers. Of course, many of Disraeli's shorter communications resemble what today we would call emails or text messages. Uh, he writes to Marianne uh, uh, from the House My darling. I shall be home for dinner at half past seven. In haste, yours, Diz. Okay, that's just a little, I'll be home late. But even short notes can have uh, you know, a trivial appearance, but can turn out to be fascinating and important. Here's one another example November 1, 1866. What about the tornado? Capital T in quotation marks. What about the tornado? Well, thanks to a docket by the archivist, we know the Disraeli Dis- scribbled that, that question on a piece of paper during a cabinet meeting. And we know that, it, thanks to Stanley, who was foreign uh, secretary at the time, uh, we know who the recipient is, because Stanley replied right under the note. And Stanley also gave us a clue by mentioning, quote, her sister ship, the cyclone, and then you just turn to the Times and you find the full story of the steamship Tornado, whose crew had been detained for 10 weeks as prisoners of war after being boarded by a Spanish frigate. So that forward note, what about the Tornado, uh, sent me on the trail of this, what was at the time, a major international incident, which I managed to compress uh, into a 15-line footnote. You can look at volume 9 and see if I did a good job or not. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we all know that Disraeli deals with big issues, the reform bill, the East, the Irish question, the Eastern question, but in my uh, mini-micro-historical research, I also witnessed Disraeli grappling with more mundane issues that don't often make it into the history books. Here's for, here, for example, just to give you an example, is how he deals with the equivalent of what we today would call computer problems. I guess in his day, he would call them writing problems. In 1866, he writes to Corey, what do you think of the ink they give us? Or is it this fat, woolly paper? Bad stationery adds much to the labor of life. And whether it's the ink, the pens, the paper, it seems to me that when in office, I can never write like a gentleman. It's a serious nuisance. Another letter to Corey that same year. My calligraphy has a cheesemongerish look. It's one of my favorite words now, (laughs) cheesemongerish. And he he blames his scrawl on the the wretched, cheap ink supplied by that miserable department, the stationery office. Seven years later, in 1873, he's still complaining to Corey, nothing can describe the infamy. Of House of Commons (laughs) stationery. The reason I pause with this is because, you know, for someone like Disraeli who was writing notes, letters, memos, reports, speeches um, constantly, uh, yes, this was indeed a serious nuisance, as he calls it, not only for Disraeli, but for his 21st century editors who have to decipher uh, some of these scrawls. Now, before closing, and I will do so. Uh, soon, uh, I just want to say a few words about Disraeli, uh, the Disraeli project, and technology, um, and give you some, some good news as well. I mentioned having all this readily available information at my fingertips. Well, most of you here, all of you here, uh, will soon have uh, most of Disraeli's letters at your fingertips as well. Thanks to another grant from the Mellon Foundation in 2012. Uh, the project started building a searchable electronic database for its holdings. Now, there are a number of uh, obstacles and challenges to uh, preparing the previous letters uh, for uploading. Uh, The the original electronic files uh, for the early volumes were written in a software program dating back 30 years and so are now, of course, unreadable. And uh, although we've used WordPerfect since Volume 5, each volume was written in a different version because, you know, versions change as well. So this this will necessitate new coding and so on. So the database is a work in progress, but the good news is that most of Disraeli's published letters and all of his unpublished letters should be uploaded by September this year.